The views and comments expressed on the Space Show by its guests, callers, and listeners belong to them. The Space Show and its hosts serve only as a platform and are not responsible for others' comments or views. All topics discussed on the Space Show are primarily for educational purposes. Good morning, listeners. It is still morning here in California, so welcome to our Friday morning California Space Show program. Thank you very much for tuning in, the first program for the Space Show in 2020, and we're glad you're with us. A couple of quick announcements. We're planning a 60-minute formatted program today, although uh, if you get in a late phone call or email, we'll we'll definitely stay on and and, uh, respond to your questions and your call. Uh, but do watch the clock so that if you do have a comment for our guest today, Dr. George Church, uh, do it while we're still broadcasting on air. Uh, we have a Sunday program about new technologies um, with uh, someone who used to be a frequent guest on the space show, and, and we're bringing him back, Michael Belfiore, a great author and technology guy. And then next week is a full space show week, and we're back to our non-holiday normal schedule. A um, couple of other things for today. Our toll-free number is 1-866-687-7223. Remember, we don't work with call screeners, so please be patient. Let the phone ring, and I'll bring you up on air as quickly as possible. You can also use email, drspace, D-R-S-P-A-C-E, at thespaceshow.com. Plus, you can post on our blog if you have questions or comments. And to do that, go to thespaceshow.com. All the way to the far right is the upcoming show menu. And uh, from there, you scroll all the way down to the bottom, and you'll see a place for comments and questions. As soon as you hit the send button, I'll get your comment or question and can bring it up on air at the appropriate time during our discussion with our guest. But do remember we're a talk show. That is our format. That implies that we like to talk more than deal with email. So please do call us. 1-866-687-7223. A couple of other things. Um, Our website newsletter gets modified and updated Sunday after the Sunday program. But the one that's on our webpage now shows uh, what we have booked going into first quarter of 2020. We're almost uh, booked up for January. And uh, your guest suggestions are always welcome. And uh, just send them, Dr. Space, D-R-S-P-A-C-E, at thespaceshow.com. And then uh, our email newsletter, if you want to be a subscriber, just make sure I have your email address. It goes out at 6 a.m. Monday morning, California time. Very, very short. Won't clutter up your inbox, I promise you that. Remember, everything we do is archived on our website, and you can also very easily download programs. Uh, we do have a LogoWare Space Show store, so if you're interested in that for your favorite Space Show listener or yourself, check it out, and to do so, click on any of the pictures of Pepper listening to the Space Show, 
and Pepper will take you into our Cafe Press Logo Wear store. And then um, also do remember we are a listener-supported program, and yes, our annual campaign has ended, but uh, the Space Show, as a 501c3 nonprofit, uh, is listener-supported, so we always uh, request your financial support, and we appreciate it. Remember, as a 501c3, if you're paying federal taxes, you get a tax deduction. It would now be for the year 2020, and the same is true if you're a California taxpayer, also for the year 2020. And uh, we certainly appreciate that. We do have sponsors, and uh, there are some sponsorships left for 2020 if you're interested. For the shorter segment shows like today, I just shout out great thanks and appreciation to our sponsors, Northrop Grumman, the Space Foundation, Astrox, Moonwards, Celestis, AIAA, the National Space Society, and the Space Plan. We wouldn't be doing this program without the generous support of our sponsors. We thank them very much. Remember, on the full-length 90-minute program, we read sponsor messages. So once again, if you're interested in becoming a Space Show sponsor, uh, send me a note at drspace at thespaceshow.com. And listeners, I can't think of a better program to start off the new year with than to be talking about one of our favorite topics and certainly one of my favorite topics, and that is modifying human genetics. Uh, for the program today, we're talking about space. But as you know, I like to talk about these programs since I have a CF child, and, and uh, gene, gene modification for cystic fibrosis holds great promise. So I have an interest in the topic, not just because of space, but for a personal interest. But Dr. Church is the professor of genetics at Harvard Medical School and a founding member of the Weiss Institute and director of personalgenomes.org, the world's only open access information on human genomic environment and trait data. He is known for pioneering the fields of personal genomics and synthetic biology. He developed the first methods for the first genome sequence and dramatic cost reduction since then, and he's contributing to nearly all next-generation sequencing methods and companies. His team invented CRISPR, which we've talked about extensively on the Space Show, for human stem cell genome editing and other synthetic biology technologies and applications, including new ways to create organs for transplantation, gene therapies for aging reversal, and gene drives to eliminate Lyme disease and malaria. Uh, you can read his full bio. It is up on the Space Show right now, and I urge you to do that. He is also um, the founder, I believe, of Harvard Consortium for Space Genetics, founded in 2016, and you can get there by going to spacegenetics.hms.harvard.edu. Dr. Church, welcome to the Space Show. Thank you very much for being with us today. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Um, I'd, I'd like to start out and and get a, a reasonable and accurate definition of what you're talking about when you think about modifying the human genome for long-duration human spaceflight. What does that mean to you rather than how we, the space enthusiasts and space advocates, might see and understand that? Uh, sure. Um... Just, just for overview, uh, the Consortium for Space Genetics uh, has an even broader um, um, 
mandate, which is looking at uh, all aspects, including um, um, extraterrestrial uh, living systems, um, microbial systems uh, in in a human environment, and so forth. So it's not just uh, limited. You still there? Yeah, I'm still here. And uh, so, um, and and uh, some of our affiliates there, Ting Wu, who is the director, and uh, Cliff Taven, David Sinclair. I think you've had on your show before. Right, he was on in anyway, 2017. Uh huh. Yeah. So anyway, and that and Gary Rovkin and I have done a, a lot of work on uh, preparing probes for for uh, Mars and and, um, at, uh, and and solar system moons uh, to detect uh, life before we pollute the planets with our own forms of life. So anyway, that's sort of the broad mandate, specifically for human adaptation for space. This can include medicines uh, in general, specifically gene therapies uh, are particularly promising. New category of medicine, which you can use to affect a very small part of your body or in some cases many different cells in your body. Um, and the, the sort of things we're targeting are the, the, the things that are some point a problem on Earth, but much more a problem um, when you leave it. And these have to do osteoporosis on Earth, but gravitational, um, you know, microgravity um, is a, a greatly exacerbates that distribution of body fluids. There are um, uh, issues with radiation um, safety, which are much, much worse um, in transit and even on uh, extraterrestrial uh, bodies in general. Uh, and then finally, um, um, uh, neuropsychiatric, uh, you know, idiosyncrasies of, of being far from everybody else and microbial um, components that should be the same as on Earth, but in practice are not. So, um, it, going to Mars, is, is Mars close enough to where uh, this type of research is not relevant or is it needed? for safely going to Mars, maybe staying there, but also coming back? I think the transit uh, puts you at great risk for, for uh, um, low gravity and radiation. Um, and even on the surface, you've got, you, you, in principle, there are things that you could do. You could um, centripetally uh, generate uh, gravitational force, either in transit or on the planet. You could protect from radiation with uh, magnetic fields and, and deep uh, tunnels and so forth, but there may be economic, there have been in the past, economic trade-offs that have prevented those things from happening in any space environment so far, and I think that will continue to be the case. And since there are quite clear ways of, of dealing with this um, in animal models that we've done, it's a matter of translating that into something that... Um, could be approved for safety and efficacy um, in, among crews. Well, you mentioned you mentioned economic, but wouldn't the cost involved of of modifying the human genetics for space travel wouldn't that be probably as costly as doing some of the mechanical things you mentioned a few minutes ago on a spaceship or on the surface? Um, well, it depends. I mean, you know, in, uh, it, at some level, uh, biology is very inexpensive. Most of the costs of uh, therapies um, are are um, in the clinical trials, um, and that depends on the, the size of the of the cohort you need to do to get 
statistical significance and so forth. But the cost of actually manufacturing and delivering um, gene therapies is very inexpensive. For example, we're developing some for veterinary use um, that we estimate are going to be less than you know, $1,000 a lifetime um, for the dogs. What would, so, it do, what would it do for the dog? Uh, that, that's a... That's a uh, it's an aging reversal clinical trial that we've done in mice and now doing it in dogs. And it's a company called Rejuvenate Bio in San Diego is doing that. But that's an example of how you can have very low cost, uh, gene, gene therapies that are very, very powerful, um, but relatively safe medicines. That means I could keep my dog young? Uh, the intention is to do aging reversal. Uh, we, we, we are not yet uh, aiming at uh, true longevity, um, but it could be uh, a, uh, a side effect that would take much longer to us to prove. So it's all about matter of what you can prove to the FDA, because even with a veterinary medicine, it still has to be approved by the FDA. Um, it's much faster and cheaper to do it in, in animals um, for, the, for the benefit of animals, but uh, uh, it, you know. It still has to be done. Interesting. I can maybe keep my dog young while I age and die. So. <laughs> well, the humans will be right behind. I mean, the same company will be using the same uh, gene therapies um, in humans very, very, very uh, soon, uh, sh- sh- shortly after the dog trials are over. How do you know for for space flight, for microgravity or radiation or fluid shifts or something? How do you know what genes to attempt to modify and are you taking those genes out and and putting them putting a modified gene in the sequence back in or how, how do you actually do this well so it's a uh, case by case and, and uh, there's a great deal we know and a great deal we don't know but uh, medicine and engineering tends to be focusing on what you do know um, with safety measures uh, in place uh, so um, for radiation there's a great deal known about uh, Radiation sensitivity genes that are involved in radiation resistance in um, microorganisms and mammalian cells, um, and a, there are a variety of, of organisms that have kind of whole body um, radiation resistance. And, and usually, these animals are also resistant to um, freezing and desiccation. So we wouldn't necessarily want to have all of those uh, necessarily for a whole human being, but we might want to have them for human organs. For transplantation and so forth, so so that's a that's a, a pretty well characterized list. A little less well characterized is what what protects what are the protections from um, osteoporosis and other gravitational effects. Um, but I think our our knowledge of this will will grow rapidly as we get um, you know more data from um, microgravity experiments. The problem is radiation you can do on Earth very easily. Microgravity is hard to do on Earth. Um, so so you you actually know the gene and the location, and you take it out and put in a modified gene. We don't we don't always have to take it out and modify. We don't have to make precise editing. So, for example, for the aging re- reversal that we're doing, we add in genes that are lower than they should be late in life. Uh, whereas you can you can see these genes that are very high levels um, when you're young. Um, and then, um, and they and they drop together, sort of in concert with one another. It's kind of, it's, it's, it almost has the appearance of planned obsolescence, where you're just taking out all the systems that you that you needed when you were young. Um, anyway, if you boost those back up in mice, then you and you see multiple diseases of aging. Five so far that we've 
studied, five out of five, um, which are restored to um, close to youthful levels, and these involve, you know, repairing heart and kidney disease and um, and osteoarthritis, uh, so forth. And there's a there's a long list we haven't even started yet. But the point is, you have multiple diseases, and and many of these quote diseases on, on of aging on Earth could also be accelerated. Um, in, an, in an environment that's more stressful, like low gravity and high radiation. Uh, so, if somebody does this to go to Mars and spend two years on Mars, do they need to reverse the process to come back to Earth? Well, probably they would be taking these uh, drugs um, before, during, and after the trip. Um, Are you still there? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, so, um, and so then they, at some point, they'd quit taking the drugs or? Well, they, yeah, they would. I mean, unless they're things that are that are good both on, on Earth and off Earth. So, you know, many things that would result in aging reversal, we think, might be good in general for people over a certain age. So they might just stay on those drugs. But they might be especially good for people that are under slightly more stressful uh, conditions of uh, space flight or extraterrestrial planetary living. So if the modification doesn't lend itself to taking a pill, because uh, I've had some people on that talk about we're going to replace the gene or something like that. I think Adam even talked about that in his, in his article. How do you get the replaced gene into the body, and then do you have to reverse that somehow if they come back from oh, wherever they are? Yeah, so if it were something you wanted to reverse, so so that I've picked a, some of the aging reversal simply because we recently published a peer-reviewed paper on it in PNAS, but there are other things that are analogous. Um, they can be either, uh, so the easiest thing is just to put in an extra copy of the gene that doesn't doesn't change the genome, it's just an extra copy that's floating around. Um, that you can turn on and off, sometimes with small molecules, meaning, you know, like innocuous, drug-like compounds that don't have any effect themselves other than to regulate the gene that you put in. So if you want it to be up during spaceflight, you, you bump it up with this uh, chemical regulator. You, you, you might, the genes themselves might be introduced by uh, injection, uh, intravenous injection, and then the, the empty viral capsid is filled with the gene therapy, and it goes and it delivers it roughly to where you want it, either where you injected it or, or where it homes. Uh, but then once the gene is in place in the cell, not, not necessarily replacing any gene, but just floating around in the, in the nucleus, then you can regulate it with small molecules from uh, taken orally, taken by mouth. Um, do you, if, if, when would this be available and how, how would you test it on humans? Would you test it real time on human spaceflight or how would the trials look for testing this for spaceflight? Well, like most trials that are uh, FDA approved, um, you have you'll have animal trials uh, uh, first, and those animals would have to be at uh, at microgravity, uh, and uh, then you might do some on human uh, cells or organoids, so you can make human-like organ systems that also could be done at microgravity um, in preparation, and then finally you would have to do clinical trials. Um, um, on on crew members that had volunteered and had been through pro- proper consenting. How far away are we from 
something like clinical trials on on the basics of this, say, you know, microgravity or radiation. Radiation sounds like it might be easier. Uh, well, I would say that uh, we're, we're probably within a couple of years of doing clinical trials on some of the aging reversal or, uh, in humans. Um, we're already doing clinical trials in dogs. Um, we have. We also have... Uh, uh, preclinical uh, primate trials that we're doing on um, uh, new types of transplantable organs. These are <clears throat> synthetic biology-derived organs grown in pigs um, that, w- that could also be useful uh, in that those can be completely engineered. And this, this gets back to your point about precise engineering. So rather than just adding an extra gene as we do in the aging reversal clinical trials, here we can extensively engineer the germline of the pig so that from birth, these, these organs have all sorts of new properties. Now, that doesn't fix it for your whole body, but there, there might be certain particular applications um, where you could replace an organ with a designed organ. Anyway, the clinical, those two clinical trials are, are well on their way in, in the um, preclinical animal phase, and they'll be starting in phase one human trials soon, um, within a couple of years. Fascinating. So... Um People believe that space settlement is right around the corner, which is uh, quite different, I guess, than space tourism, which is much more shorter duration. But um, if, if, and a lot is not known about space settlement, but let's just pick settling on a two- or three-year habitat or something on the moon, uh, since people are probably going to learn as they go along, sort of on-the-job training, would you be able to do any of these procedures to someone already in space uh, or already on, say, a, a lunar habitat if you, if you found out XYZ was needed? Uh, is, is that something that could be researched on the job training, so to speak? Well, there's nothing particularly um, unusual about you know, new medicine, you know, new medicines that have been through clinical trials on Earth, say, for other diseases, using them slightly off-label, meaning this is this is done um, already. Um, you, you know, you'll have it approved for one cancer, and you'll try it on a related cancer um, or preventative, for that matter. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's just, if they're just inje- injections, they'll be getting those um, just as easily. Space. I wouldn't call it on-the-job training. It would be something where a clinician, a, a physician, you know, for the for the space travel would would have at their disposal all the approved drugs and maybe even a few experimental drugs that have been through proper consenting. Uh, I have a our first email question is from uh, Joshua in Denver, and he said if somebody has decided to do one of these much-talked-about one-way Mars trips and actually stay on Mars and live on Mars, uh, in your opinion, would they somehow need to be genetically modified in order to live on Mars? And are we anywhere near being able to do that for permanent residents, say, on Mars? Well, I think we're much closer um, to having human beings that have had gene therapies than we are to having human beings that are, that are temporary or permanent residents on Mars in the sense that we already have human beings that have um, been through um, 
gene therapy successfully and, and cured, there's a handful of fully FDA-approved drugs uh, that are based on gene therapy, and these are now in use. Um, you know, you can you can get them from your physician, basically. So that's that's well established. Now, having the, the subset of those that would be applicable to um, either short or long term on Mars, that's still in the future. But the point is, it's more well demo- that category is more well demonstrated and living for prolonged periods of time um, anywhere other than the International Space Station, which is a very special case, very low orbit, really, um, very different from Moon or Mars. So, uh, you know, I think they're both a ways off, uh, you know, years off, but uh, but it's not like centuries off. Uh, the, what we need to do is, is known. Um, another email is from listener Carolyn in Seattle, and she says, uh, Dr. Church, I'm a frequent listener to the space show, and in other programs where David has talked about this, he has also talked about attending gene modification lectures at Stanford and UC Berkeley as well as UCSF where for cystic fibrosis and other diseases they're actually cutting out the impacted genes and replacing them with genes that should have been there in the first place thus with one dose of gene therapy the diseases are cured he's mentioned CF Huntington's disease and a host of others this doesn't sound like the approach being used for human spaceflight or am I misunderstanding something? No, I think the, the understanding is basically correct. The, the, uh, the difference here is between precise genome editing and adding a gene, uh, replacing or adding. And almost, uh, almost all of the currently approved gene therapies are adding genes, not replacing um, and that's going to change, but um, the things that, that I think that have been mentioned on your show so far um, are much more experimental. They're preclinical, um, I'm guessing. Um, there are certainly are therapies for cystic fibrosis, but they're not, uh, they're not yet clinic. The, the ones that are approved are small molecules, not um, gene therapies, but that, that'll change soon. Um, is... Um is this type of research going on uh, all over the place in, in different countries as well, or is it primarily uh, done in the United States because maybe it needs a lot of money to continue? So how, how does the research on this, especially for spaceflight, look on a sort of a global uh, specter? Uh, I think it's uh, it, it's pretty well international, and it... Uh, it uh, it's fairly low cost, um, you know, it's roughly the same as developing other drugs. Um, the thing that becomes costly is when you have a, a um, standard amount of research costs and a small number of people benefiting from that, as is the case for rare diseases and is also the case for currently small numbers of people that would be going into space. So that's where the denominator, essentially, of the economics is so small that, you, that, the, that the numerator becomes significant. That is to say, the research costs are not amortized or distributed over a large number of potential beneficiaries. So I think that's the, the problem with rare diseases and, and, um, and 
uh, small industries like space industries uh, that has per- peculiar health uh, hazards. Um, another email is Larry in San Diego, and he says, um, are there any ethical challenges in doing this type of research with humans, even if humans volunteer? Well, there always are um, ethical considerations for new technologies, and uh, many of these are addressed by the FDA or in Europe, the EMA, and and equivalents in other countries, Um, and those require clinical trials. So uh, even when, uh, when you get Proper consenting, meaning that they know what they're getting into. They've been, uh, they've, you know, proven to the, the clinical researchers that they that they know what's going on and, and the risks and the benefits to themselves and people around them. Um, you still have to be very cautious. You have to be monitoring for any um, any untoward events, uh, and these events have to be reported back to the, um, the board that is uh, determining safety and ethics. Um, but that's that's exactly the same as uh, as every other drug that's been approved um, uh, since the FDA was established. Um, are there for for your space flight research in genetics? Um, are there spillovers to um, having better health or doing something better here? For example. You mentioned osteoporosis, so I know tons and tons of people, as does everybody, that that have osteoporosis. Uh, what you do vis-a-vis research for microgravity and uh, and other effects of um, microgravity or even zero gravity, does it spill over to help those of us who are earthbound and, and not going to space? Well, it can work both ways. I think it's more likely to spill over from Earth to space than space to Earth. But you know, there, there, there's a little flow of technology both ways. Uh, in particular, the way to bring down the cost is to work on diseases that affect many people. And so, even broader than so, osteoporosis affects more people than just space-based um, uh, microgravity problems. Um, so, but if you go even broader to diseases of aging, which include osteoporosis, um, if you can get a drug that helps a lot of people, both on Earth and in space, then that's going to be cheaper and sooner. Uh, it's going to be a higher priority because so many people are could benefit from it. So I think that that probably will be something where we develop it on Earth for Earth problems, and it just turns out that, that, uh, that it could benefit um, people in space as well. Um, and, and part of it is, is recognition of the, the evolution of our species. We were cutting corners. We were being uh, uh, genetically frugal. We, were, we didn't want to spend a lot of energy on repairing uh, radiation damage or on maintaining high, uh, high bone density uh, if we didn't have to. So we were really penny-wise and pound-foolish in an evolutionary sense. But now because we're kind of wealthier as, as a species in a certain sense, um, physiologically wealthier, we can spend that extra energy on stronger bones and, and more resistant um, uh, more resistance to radiation. Um, Helen in Tucson says, um, am I understanding you correctly that over time we could possibly modify Mars residents 
to spend time or at least much more time on the surface of Mars and be okay given the radiation, whereas today we couldn't do that and everybody's talking about living underground. Can you genetically modify a human to where they could live on the surface of Mars? I, I suspect it will be some combination. We'll, we'll try to do as much as we can with physics. Uh, but yeah, so we've 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 seen that there are um, animals and cellular systems that have been improved by over ten thousand, hundred thousand fold in their radiation resistance. So obviously, would be a great uh, benefit both uh, medically and economically if we could uh, translate that into clinically practical um, administered medicine. Um, in for space research on human genetics, is there? A priority list that uh, this is what we want to tackle first, this is most important, this is second. Uh, is, does such a priority list of goals exist and what would it be? I would say probably radiation is, is highest because, you know, generating centrifugal motion is, um, you know, seems pretty straightforward even though it's never been done uh, as far as I know. Um, the radiation is, is harder. It's, it's harder to harden uh, a small uh, vehicle. I mean, it takes sort of the equivalent of 10 meters of, of matter, uh, 10 meters of water or, or some other some solid uh, plus magnetic field to, to protect us from solar flares and other galactic cosmic radiation. Uh, so, so anything we could do to reduce um, that that radiation burden, I think, would be a high priority. And it also has a high priority because we know more about it, so we know what to do. Um, so my guess is that will be one of the first things. Um, and it, uh, osteoporosis, on the other hand, is a high priority simply because it might be part of a broader aging reversal package that we develop on Earth. So I think those two will probably be the first two um, in the pipeline for different reasons. Um. Tim is in Dallas, Texas, and he said, David, I'm at work. I'm not able to call you. But uh, my question is, there uh, are radiation scientists that have published, and David talks about them frequently in their work. Uh, Dr. Charles Limoli comes to mind, and he has been showing how cognitive ability of astronauts and others is uh, greatly impacted by radiation. Would you, when you're talking about radiation in the human genome, be able to do something that stops radiation from causing a cognitive de decline in humans in spaceflight? So I think that's a um, probably falls under the same category as the radiation resistance that, that have been established uh, in various animals. I think it's less well established than other biomarkers for radiation. Um, it's a hard, it's, it's harder experiments to do cognitive testing um, in in, uh, in either very small animals or mice or, or um, uh, larger human-like an, uh, animals in human range of size. Um, but I, I think what uh, so much is known about the fundamentals of radiation resistance, I suspect that that some of these where the radiation resistance will confer will be conferred to um, uh, a sort of cellular level phenotypes um, like DNA damage will the very similar very similar um, uh, quantitative
quantitative dose response curves we've seen for cognitive. But we can't expect a one-to-one perfect relationship between the cellular level, which are easy to assay, and the the whole organism cognitive level. But we can, that will certainly be uh, uh, something we we can, we can increasingly determine. So from, from your perspective and what you know and your expertise, uh, and what the the realistic potential is of genetic research for humans in spaceflight? Do you see any showstoppers out there for humans to be traveling and living and settling throughout the solar system, like we hear so many people talk about and claim is our future, and on and on and on? Uh, if we're if we're not going to get one-to-one reversals and, and cures, do you see showstoppers where, where you just do it and accept the risk? Um, we're, we're much more risk-averse than our ancestors were a couple of centuries ago, so we will accept some risks, but they won't be... Uh, it won't, the focus will be on win-win situations where we don't have to accept the risks. I don't see any showstoppers, really. I do see some things that that would be called inconvenient, <laughs> um, that, you know, we won't, 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 we haven't so far, um, focused enough, uh, resources on them. Things like, um, you know, completely recycled, uh, systems. You know, the ISS is not completely recycled. It's a partial recycling system. Um, so I think that's, that's one thing that is an example, and the, and the microgravity or the centrifugal gravity is another one where we, we know what we need to do, but it's inconvenient enough we haven't gotten to it. So it's not a showstopper, but it clearly is something that the engineers and the funders have been reluctant to, to get serious about. And they seem to me to be much less expensive um, than, than the overall physics part, uh, which, which is where all the money goes, um, we, we, we far too often ignore the biology. It's like, well, we've got a long line of astronauts and would-be you know, colonists. Uh, we, don't, we don't need to uh, cater to their whims. We can just pick whoever is the most enthusiastic. And I, I think we, we, gotta, we have to focus much more energy on the, on the, on the biological issues. We're spending a, a far more money on the physics than we are on the biology. Um, that seems to be a, a common thread that I hear, uh, but not so much from the physics that we, we spend a lot on engineering and not enough on human factors or the medical side. Yeah, I, I didn't want to say engineering because it's <laughs> biological engineering we're talking about. So it's physics and it's the engineering, the physics and chemical systems, the, the propulsion systems, the, you know, the, the, the uh, keeping keeping pressurized systems and spacesuits and that sort of stuff. That's what I meant by physics. So um, you may not see showstoppers because you understand all of this really well. Let's turn for a moment to the policymakers and the regulators because it, it often appears to me from having done this show coming into my 19th year now that they often don't grasp what, what you're talking about and others in the field grasp about, and they make policy and regulations that aren't really based on, on sound science or medicine or something like that. So from where you sit, do you think it's possible regulators and policymakers could see showstoppers and we could have a regulatory problem down the road? 
I think the policymakers and regulators, basically their heart is in the right place. Um, occasionally, if they don't know quite enough, I mean, they get a lot of advice, and it's, but if somehow the advice gets distorted, um, then they can come up with policies that are self-contradictory, you know, like, oh, you know, zero tolerance for radiation damage, but no shielding, um, <laughs> for example. Uh-huh. Um, I don't think they're going to see the, so sh- see the showstoppers before the uh, engineers would, and I don't think they're going to make up showstoppers uh, necessarily uh, unless they want to kill the program for some other reason. Um, so uh, I don't. I, I think regulators are our friends. Uh, they keep us from having um, the kind of uh, human um, tragedies that would that would become showstoppers socially uh, if, if you get um, a lot of people dying um, of unintended or marginalized risks, risks that would have been ignored um, but but documented, um, that, that could be a showstopper because we're just unwilling to, to take further risks. Uh, but I think, I think we're all paying attention. The FDA is not going to make any special exceptions. Um, we're going to want to have very high safety there. Does FDA have a good understanding of the discipline that you're working in? I think they will. They they, they tend to adapt very quickly. They they will see um, as the the clinical trial data will have much the same uh, format as earthbound ones. You know, in earthbound patients get radiation therapy, they get chemotherapy, they get all kinds of toxic things, and the FDA evaluates whether the benefits outweigh the risks. And so, in this case, um, some of the risks will be a given um, for they're in a new environment. Um, uh, I think they'll be able to wrap their head around it pretty easily. Uh, ben has an interesting email, uh, and he says, do you foresee some time, maybe in the near future, but at least maybe down the road, where there might be gene therapies that could be carried out in low-Earth orbit microgravity or maybe almost zero gravity in deeper space that could be used as curative problems or solutions for human diseases. So the best place and the best way to treat a person would be to get them to space for treatment. Do you foresee something like that happening, and then when they're cured, they come back to Earth? Yeah, it's a very interesting um, possibility, uh, or even not coming back to Earth. I mean, there, there's certain you know, diseases where just the stress of of, uh, of gravity is is severe. Um, so, I mean, I think they're fairly rare, and um, there were probably some of the uh, risks of being in space would outweigh the benefits from, say. You know, having fewer bed sores because you're not putting pressure on on your body. You don't need to be flipping yourself all day. Um, that that seems like a fairly minor symptom that would be could be alleviated by microgravity, but probably wouldn't be worth it considering all the other problems. Um, it could be um, osteoporosis itself. Um, you might be in better shape uh, uh, because there. Uh, as long as, it depends on whether you think that you're falling. Falling is a great risk to people with osteoporosis on Earth, but it could be 
pushing off, there's no falling in, in, in microgravity, but pushing off of the surface, then you end up ramming into another surface. Um, you can break bones with osteoporosis without falling as well. So I, I, I'm stretching my mind to think of examples where being in space would be of medical benefit. I think it's possible. I, I don't think it's been, I haven't seen a well-articulated case for it. Uh, listeners, we still have time uh, for more of your emails, Dr. Space, D-R-S-P-A-C-E, at thespaceshow.com. And if you're not listening at work or you have your phone lines available, it is toll-free 1-866-687-7223. We occasionally have guests on that propose... Uh, looking at Titan, uh, you know, one of the far out moons in the solar system for human settlement, uh, maybe the clouds of Venus. Uh, they, they list a lot of places that they think uh, might be great for settlement. Um, are the human problems and the, and the gene modification problems to adapt for long duration human spaceflight, would they say be different? On on Mars or in the clouds of of Venus or on Titan, like would you have to adapt for cold temperatures or uh, or are you looking at pretty much the same no matter where you might eventually be able to go with humans in the solar system? Well, I think the the, the things we've been talking about so far, um, you know, microgravity and radiation, are going to be common to many of the destinations. Uh, many of them. You know, moons of Saturn and Jupiter are are still high radiation flux, um, but so so these will be common. But there will be some that will be individualized. Uh, if, you know, some places where you have it, where you have an atmosphere, you might want to uh, be able to survive in that atmosphere for longer periods of time. Not necessarily breathe it, but just if you get exposed to it, you'd like to be resistant to it. Say. Um, and that might be the case in, in the clouds of Venus. Um, um, in uh, some of there, there are about six uh, icy moons where they have more water than they have on Earth. Uh, that's very in, in, enticing. Um, but in many cases, they'll be under a solid layer of ice, so there might be pressure sensitivity that might be you know akin to the kind of adaptations we might want for prolonged uh, existence. Um, at the bottom of the ocean, so <clears throat> bottom of Earth's ocean. Um, I think these are further off and more speculative, but it is interesting to think there's going to be generic um, medicines that will help us in general, both on Earth and in space. There'll be a, a smaller set space-specific, and then an even smaller set that's, that's specific to the particular planetary environment. Fascinating world that's. Um that's coming up. I have a, another uh, listener email for you, and uh, Connie is in Houston. And uh, Connie says, um, I'm curious, science fiction is really keen on hibernation and sleeper ships, and I've heard of some sort of research projects going on for hibernation that might have applicabilities down the road for human spaceflight. If, if one really was able to do uh, interplanetary travel and have some sort of a sleeper ship for a hundred years or something like that. Would the people involved in that need to be genetically modified to be put into hibernation? How do you see something like that happen? I, I realize, realize this is probably purely 
science fiction, but I'm curious as to what you think about it. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, many of the things that I've seen happen in my laboratory and laboratories affiliated with me were science fiction when we started on them, and now they're now they're in routine use uh, in the world. Um, so I wouldn't dismiss science fiction. That sometimes it helps us think of what we want, think of unintended negative and positive consequences. Uh, I, I, you know, I welcome it. Um, um, hibernation. There is some um, uh, investigation of metabolic uh, manipulations that could result in hibernation without genetic modification. There will be addition. Most of the really good hibernators, you know, really good hibernators in, in the animal world, especially mam- mammalian, which are close to us, bears and uh, you know smaller animals. Uh, th- those um, are genetically different. Uh, and metabolically uh, altered, typically not much more than six months, uh, and not uh, years. And so, there, I mean, there's a challenge of getting, um, you know, keeping all your systems going, keeping your digestive system in shape when it's not being used, um, or keeping it in use and still being uh, in a state that you would call hibernation. Those are challenges. Um, there's possibilities of freezing. Um, so there are animals that can be completely frozen in their intact state and thawed with high viability recovery. Um, we may be um, getting better at that um, because we want to store frozen human organs for transplantation. And so there's a whole field of research on um, translating discoveries we've made on animals resistant to freezing into human organs. And if it works on human organs, then you might build it on work on a whole human. Obviously, going through lots of animal trials first. Um, freezing is not a panacea, however, even if we did get it, because you're still getting radiation damage. Um, it won't manifest itself until you thaw, or until quite a bit after thawing. Um, but what you might have to do is freeze and then thaw, do repair for a while, refreeze, go, you know, go for a while, accumulate damage, and then thaw long enough to repair it, and so forth. You go through cycles of freezing and thawing. But the person need not be awake for long periods of time to do that that um, uh, repair those repair processes and so for them it would just seem like just a, a series of meals <laughs> um, on their way to the, to the uh, how is a bear genetically different because they hibernate we don't really know all the details of uh, you know multiple um, system components that, that help with uh, their hibernation uh, it is probably multiple systems, just like there are multiple systems that make it possible for a whale to dive down the bottom of the ocean without getting the bends, uh, multiple adaptations to uh, um, you know, to animals that, that live at high altitude, um, and humans, for that matter, that are tolerant of, of, of deep and, and, and height. Um, so, uh, I mean, there are humans that, that, that um, spend a great deal of time asleep, um, uh, you, you know, or or coma-like states, uh, either um, genetically or um, more often uh, due to some kind of medical condition. Uh, but those are not necessarily the the prototypes that we would. Uh, they're not necessarily as good a prototype as a bear, and a bear is not necessarily as good a prototype as we could come up with um, with synthetic biology. Um, 
there are people uh, like in Africa that can run and go with little or, or no water. They live in sun and they, they don't get sun cancer, radiation cancer. They uh, live in the high altitudes in, in Peru. Um, are they genetically different than us? What gives them those characteristics that city dwellers, for example, here in San Francisco don't have? Oh, yeah. So um, there are uh, quite a number of uh, documented uh, genetic alleles in human populations that uh, decrease their risk for a particular uh, problem. Um, and you've listed some of the, the, the genes are known in these cases. I actually uh, maintain a website uh, listing these. Um, and uh, some, some of them have... Uh, Negative as well as positive consequences, positive for one circumstance and negative for another. For example, some people have extremely strong bones. They're at low risk for osteoporosis, but they, uh, you know, they, they, they sink in the, when they swim, and they uh, sometimes have, um, uh, they have closure of uh, the, the, the small orifices, the small holes in the skull, um, and other bones. Um, so anyway, they're trade-offs for some of these, but not all of them. You know, so um, uh, yes, each each um, geographical location. Uh, up until recently, people tended to, to live and die in, in the same village, um, and those ge- geographical locations have very specific um, selection pressures uh, that would result in uh, these mutations that would become quite common. Um, and, there, and some of them will document. We keep continue to discover them. I think it's one of the things that's exciting about the process that we're in of sequencing many people from all over the planet and finding out what are their superpowers and, and for that matter, their super weaknesses. Um, Tom uh, is in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and he said since uh, David introduced you as being one of the developers of CRISPR, I noticed that there are... CRISPR units that individuals can buy to play around and do their own genetic research. Um, do you have any thoughts on this? Um, is there research that that normal people without the kind of background training and education that you have can play around with safely by using one of these home-bought CRISPR projects? Uh, right. The, the the home brew CRISPR kits are, as far as I know, quite safe. They're typically used on yeast, um, the same way that one might do um, home home brew brewing or cooking or um, you know seeds um, uh, breeding of plants and animals. Um, these are things uh, that historically been of of, uh, of interest. Um, to amateur hobbyists in, in, in biological investigations. Um, certainly, it is not recommended that you do experiments on your own body, uh, aside from maybe cooking experiments that are, uh, that are using generally recognized as safe components. Um, and even there, you need, you need to be cautious. And, uh, but yeah, I, I think the CRISPR kits are educational and they help you change it from some abstract word salad to uh, to something that you can see is not that hard. Uh, it is remarkably uh, inexpensive 
uh, and probably safer than, than the chemistry kits uh, of yore that I grew up with. The, the Gilbert where, chemistry kits. Exactly. Where we, we could blow things up with those. Yeah, those, those were quite, uh, <laughs> they were quite uh, hazardous and intriguing, uh, but, but I think the CRISPR kits uh, are, you know, you're going to change the color of a yeast um, cell or that sort of thing. Well, there there is that one person who said he modified something and injected it into himself, and then he died from it. So um, he got a lot of news coverage about that about two years ago. Um, yeah, I don't like I said, I don't recommend you doing medical experiments on yourself unless you've gotten uh, an IRB approval, uh, you know, FDA uh, <laughs> to do it on yourself. Uh, you, there, there is self experimentation is acceptable under certain circumstances, but the point is you shouldn't do experimentation on yourself or anyone else medically without a medical ethics board, ideally associated with a hospital or university that knows what they're doing, proving what so that you know what you're doing. Um, so then, and if you do do it, uh, it will probably be a, you know some kind of double blind, placebo controlled, randomized clinical trial. So the randomized clinical trial. Not just as in a one of just yourself. Uh, you, you can get placebo effects that you don't understand. No placebo effects where you get negative consequences, uh, etc. So I, I would strongly urge that you do your homework before you do anything uh, involving human beings. And this is sort of an interesting question. It's from Elizabeth in Chicago, and she says, "I would like to talk to you about the the research and how it's done in the United States." Is all of the research that you're doing done by private universities, um, they may get government funding, but they're still basically private universities. Does the U.S. government do any of this kind of research, or is it all in the private hands and the hands of pharmaceuticals? And most pharmaceuticals seem to be motivated and working with venture capital models uh, more than anything else. Then we end up with workable drugs with unbelievable prices, maybe into the hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. If we had government research, would it be better? Uh, or maybe there is government research, and I don't understand the models for how we're doing this kind of research in this country. Yeah, great question. Um, there is a great deal of government funding for clinical trials. Um, they don't have to involve a company, but... Uh, it is a convenient way of uh, taking responsibility in a certain sense that so you know that this this money is going to uh, um, be committed. Uh, it's going to be managed by a professional group. A lot of academics are not particularly good at uh, managing large sums. Of, you know, typically, these clinical trials cost hundreds of millions of dollars um, and have a fairly high failure rate. So when you say that particular drug costs a billion dollars to develop, it means that you tried five different drugs, one of them succeeded, they cost about $200 million each. So anyway, it is expensive, there is government funding for it, it's not just private. Um, the pharmaceutical companies are not necessarily the venture capital, sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't. Many, most of the pharmaceutical companies are well beyond the venture capital stage, although they might acquire a smaller company that's recently been venture capital. These are separate Simply separate mechanisms, hospital mechanisms, university, government, VC, and, and big pharma. None of them are ideal, um, but most of the costs, as I mentioned earlier, is because you have a fixed cost for doing clinical trial 
where you want to avoid, you want to have safety and efficacy, and that just takes a lot of experiments on people, and you want them to be safe. Um, that costs money. And then to pay it back, the, the larger the number of people that are going to benefit from it, the cheaper it's going to be. So there are some drugs that are incredibly inexpensive. Even some drugs before they get to generic status, I mean, once they're off patent, uh, and all the presumably all the research costs have been paid off. Um, but even before that, there's some that, that can be quite uh, inexpensive if there's a very large market, like, for example, the statins are fairly fairly reasonable, although they could be even more reasonable. Um, um, but certainly by the time they get to generic status, then they then you can really get to very inexpensive drugs. Well, that's, what, 20 years or something like that? Yes, right. Well, 20 years from the invention, usually... By the time the clinical trials are done, it might be just a couple of years. It's, un- you know, it's a little sad, but they have to make their money back. Uh, so, so to, quickly. To, to bring in my favorite example, just so that I understand, and if I understand, maybe a lot of others understand too. So if, if we take an illness like CF, which does not have a big population, it's classified as an orphan drug disease, Prices are so high for like vertex medications that are on the market for specific genetic combinations over three hundred thousand dollars a year, but their market is thirty thousand people in the U.S. with CF in general, and even less with that specific gene combination. So the fact that that sample size or market size is so tiny, then the cost of that drug is really huge. That's right, because there's not that much you can do to reduce the cost of the safety and efficacy parts of the research. If you cut corners on that, then you'll be introducing drugs onto the market which are unsafe or ineffective. And there are examples of that. For example, thalidomide um, caused 15,000 children to be born severely malformed um, because wasn't quite enough safety testing um, before it went out to the market. But, but oh. the problem is how, I, and I know this isn't the subject of the show, but it, again, it's a nightmare my son and I are living, is how do you get health insurance to pay for a $300,000 drug a year plus affordable co-pays because people can't pay ten, yeah. fifteen, twenty thousand $20,000 a month for the drug, which we're I, facing with Vertex drugs right now. So yeah. is I know this is not your field. Well, maybe it is. Is there a solution? Part of my field. Is there a solution around this problem, especially with drugs that are targeted toward uh, illness groups that, that numerically are just not very large? Right. Well, there is, there was a partial solution um, that uh, I think both you and I know about, which is, uh, but maybe not all the listeners, um, which is the Orphan Drug Act, um, where they made it possible for pharmaceutical companies and insurers to to um, provide some um, new drugs um, for rare diseases. Um, it never they nevertheless do want to put some of the burden onto the families, uh, sometimes an unacceptable burden. But it is there are a lot more orphan drugs today, meaning drugs that are applicable to rare diseases like CF, than there were before the Orphan Drug Act, or there more than there would have been if there had been no or- orphan drug. Right. So, so I, I don't know why, in your particular case, that isn't good enough. But we could, we can we can vote for better orphan drug act if if that's uh, if that's what society wants. I think it's a real testimony to our compassion 
that we've gone as far as we have in terms of um, orphan dragon egg. Would spaceflight, I mean, this is a real stretch, but would, would human spaceflight fall under the category of the Orphan Drug Act? That's a small population. Yeah, I think uh, that's a very interesting question, and I don't, uh, I know uh, quite a bit about the two subjects separately, but not together. Um, I just, you know, it, it, you know it, 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 and in a way it is a voluntarily inflicted disease, while the Orphan Drug, I think, is aimed at, uh, no, I, I, I think, yeah, I think the Orphan Drug Act is is more aimed at rare diseases that you didn't volunteer for. But I think you'd, you'd need a legal scholar to tell you whether it would be applicable. Uh, but certainly the kind of research that Orphan Drug Act encourages would benefit the space community, even if it, even if the economics isn't directly aimed at the space community. So osteoporosis, for example, would would probably benefit. That with the rare diseases CF because they end up with osteoporosis yes. for That's a different example. reason, but yep. but the solution might be similar. Correct. Yep. Uh, and there's some there's some things like antibiotics. Uh, if you get, a lot of the CF problems have to do with pseudomonas. Uh-huh. Um, anything any breakthrough that was on the big market of antibiotics could uh, help the rarer market of CF. Um. A lot of connections and, and uh, things to do. In focusing your work, um, long-term goals, what what are your your goals? Like, are, are your goals to make human spaceflight safer and more possible? Or how would you define your goals for doing this research? Uh, yeah, I mean, we're, we're uh, interested in uh, things that would be a broad benefit the society. We don't want to, I'm trying to focus on things that would be um, beneficial to the largest number of people, uh, not just an elite um, set of society. And sometimes that's a, a question of how does how does space travel help us all rather than just some elite. Um, and I think the answer is we need a backup for if there's a lot of existential risks that could endanger our entire species if we're not distributed. So in that sense, it helps us all. Um, you know, we're interested in related, you know, things that are related to space, um, like um, being able to do completely self-sustained, recycled environments. Um, that's realistic. If you're going to be on Mars, you're not going to be sending back your laundry to be done on Earth. Uh, you're not going to be sending back your waste uh, and, and getting shipped. You, you, you will to some extent, but it would be very nice if you could do recycling. And that could also be is relevant to some of the issues we have on Earth about carbon sequestration, um, you know, which where you want to be able to at will pull as much carbon out of the air as you want. Same thing is even more so in space colonies. You want to be able to be in complete control of the carbon oxygen balance, uh, and that so that's again something that where both both worlds could benefit uh, if we got much better at that. Um, you know, genetics. We, we're looking at things. Aging reversal is something which could benefit everybody on the planet. Almost every disease is impacted by uh, aging, um, and so we can uh, greatly is something that could be a broad applicability and reduce costs and, um, and make it uh, broadly accessible. Um, Bill is in uh, Memphis, and he says um, many people want to be a space tourism. Uh, a space tourist. 
uh, anything from going up and down on a suborbital trip to maybe soon, at least they think it's going to be soon, where they could spend a couple of weeks in an orbiting space hotel. Do you see any genetic risk or requirements for a space tourist who would be in space for a limited amount of time, probably in Leo, but maybe a couple of days to fly around the moon. I know there's a program planned like that with SpaceX. What do you see for a short-term space user like a tourist? Yeah, there probably will be some people that are uh, have special needs or special risks. Um, you know, for example, people that have high radiation resistance that protect themselves from the sorry high radiation sensitivity to protect themselves from the sun might not want to do it. People who have um, you know extreme um, motion sickness and there's a there's a different sickness which is a space sickness which is related to but distinct from motion sickness that may have genetic components or let us say more broadly biological components because I knew that I had extreme motion sickness when I was young I don't seem to have it as much now so so it, it might have it arguably was biological um, so anyway those people might not want to do it or they, or they might need special drugs so I've been at zero gravity and and I took uh, you know um, pills to, to uh, make that a more pleasant experience uh, so anyway there's there are going to be medical considerations that everybody should uh, and hopefully whoever is providing the service um, does it in a response responsible way. They'll be highly incentivized to do it in a responsible way or else they'll be out of business. Maybe maybe you can make it such that we don't get claustrophobia anymore. Is, is... Well, there, there are people that for various you know, biological, psychosocial reasons can't, can't stand being in close quarters with other people or without other people. Um, so, yeah, all of that's got... You, you, it'd be best if as much testing can be done on Earth as possible which is another one of my pet peeves, is that we really should be doing, testing space colonies on Earth. Uh, whatever we can't, we can't do microgravity on Earth, but almost everything else we could test on Earth. And that would be much lower cost and much lower risk. And we could have thousands of them, so we could test lots of different, lots of big experiments. People might even pay for it themselves the way they would pay for a house. And they would be queuing up, essentially, by proving their their ability to live in a fully recycled small environment. Um, they would be establishing their credentials much in the same way that the early astronauts in um, Mercury, Gemini, and, and uh, Apollo proved that they could uh, handle various aspects of flight, like high G-forces. Why aren't we doing that? I, I just think part of it is no one's come up with the right business model where they offered inexpensive... Uh, space-like housing on Earth, which could actually have advantages on Earth, uh, not just for queuing yourself up for space travel, but also for um, um, zero commute, no infectious diseases, because you've been quarantined before you went in there. You could have the colony as big or as small as you wanted, as small as one person, as large as town. I think that that could be almost the same cost, possibly even lower cost than and uh, certain housing configurations today. So I think it's just a business model, and, and, uh, and you know, I'm thinking about it. Other when, people, when, you, are too. when you say quarantine, that means that once you go into the city, you, you're not going to go out to go to a movie or to go to a symphony or anything like that, right? You'd have to, you'd bring them in. So you'd either, 
you know, have your colony big enough that you could have a few um, musicians in the colony, or you could bring them in um, uh, more electronically. Fascinating. I could see a senior community like that. Yeah, well, you know, there's a lot of people who who, who don't really need to um, go to work. Um, you know, or they, they, they might commute to a, a small workplace where they're, which is not that different from, a, you know, if it were just opening a door in their home. Uh, so many people either don't leave their home or um, don't need to leave their home in order to do their jobs, uh, increasingly so in our modern environment. So it's an interesting, it may, it may become more economically feasible to test out space colonies on Earth. Uh, we're uh, sort of approaching uh, the 90-minute show, and um, what have we missed? What uh, did you expect to talk about that we haven't talked about yet, or what should we have talked about? Uh, what else would, would you like to offer us this morning? I think we hit most of the points. Uh, you know, some of them could be covered in more depth if we had uh, a huge amount of time. Uh, but, no, I think it was, a, it was a good conversation. Maybe we'll have another one in the future. You don't provide, uh, like, a, a space genetic research newsletter or, or something like that to stay up on what you're doing, do you? Well, we have um, um, the a Space Genetics Consortium, certainly. Um, that can be found uh, just by Google Google search for Space right. Genetics Consortium. Um, and, uh, and I do update the, uh, the uh, ex- you know, Exceptional Genetic Traits um, webpage as well. What's the exceptional genetic traits web? Oh, this is what we were talking about earlier with uh, um, uh, it's called uh, for, for you know people that are, that are found in, on the planet that that already have uh, exceptional genetic traits. The, the website is uh, is my website with a suffix protect.html. Um, uh, you can. So it has things like these extra strong bones that I mentioned and um, pain insensitivity and, um, um, you know, high and low, uh, high altitude, um, sleep variations, low cancer risk, low Alzheimer's risk, so forth, these sort of things, some of which are relevant to space. So that's updated um, whenever any, any, any okay. new genetics comes out. I'll, I'll put the links to that in the summary sure. when I write the show. Um I want to thank you for uh, sharing your your valuable time with us, and it's a fascinating uh, project. Do you think in five years we will have um, sizable progress, uh, human demos going on? Uh, Where where do you think we'll be in five years with this? I hope at least we will have more uh, space colonies on Earth. That's very inexpensive. Like I said, it could even be less expensive than conventional housing. Uh, I, I, I think we will probably have clinical trials that are very relevant, probably that are like dual function, both um, Earth, Earth health and uh, especially space. Um, I think those two things should be possible within the next five years. Um, we won't have completed any clinical trials. We will have just started them because it takes 10 years to complete them. But still, five years, you can be well into it and know and have a pretty good idea where it's going. Um, and hopefully in that same time frame we'll be making, um, you know, progress on um, on the flight systems and so forth, bringing down the cost uh, uh, of uh, the physics and chemistry engineering. Um, an interesting five years coming up. 
and uh, yep. we'll we'll be following it. And I ho- hope we can talk to you again down the road. But this has been uh, great, and I appreciate again your time for us. Yeah, great. Okay, take care. Thank you yep. very much. And uh, listeners, that's uh, it for today. And uh, come back on Sunday with Michael Belfiore. And uh, we thank Dr. Church and uh, those of you who sent in emails. Goodbye from Dr. Church. Goodbye from myself. Happy New Year. This was our first show of the year. And, uh, of course, goodbye from the Space Show. Everybody keep looking up and keep it safe.